0: In May 1932, in the Atlas region of Stockholm, Sweden, there lived a 32-year-old prostitute named Lily Lindstrom. She was known throughout her apartment building as the call girl, because she was the only tenant who actually had her own phone. Downstairs lived Lily's friend, Minnie Jansen, another prostitute who was the last person to see Lily Lindstrom alive. On May 2nd, Lily made two trips down to Minnie's apartment around 9 p.m. to borrow condoms. It was two days later when Minnie began to get worried that she hadn't heard from her friend since. So she went up to the apartment to see if she was okay. There, she found Lily's body face down on her bed. She was naked, and her clothes were neatly folded on a chair next to the body. Police determined that she'd been dead for two days. Now, I won't get into all the gruesome details. Just let it be said that it was clear that she'd had intercourse before death. And if forensic science back then had been anything like it is today, there's a good chance the killer may have been caught because he left behind quite a bit of DNA. The official cause of Lily's death was blunt force trauma to the head. But that's not what makes her murder so memorable. No, the reason Lily Lindstrom's murder has gone down in history is because when the medical examiners studied her body, they discovered that nearly all of Lily's blood had been drained out of it. If that's not disturbing enough, police found a gravy ladle near the body which they believe the killer used to drink her blood. Now, if Lily Lindstrom had been murdered elsewhere in the world, the newspapers might have used a different word to describe her killer. The Hebrew term is aluka, which literally translates to leech. In Albania, they use the word striga to describe their particular variety of blood-sucking boogeyman. In Greece, they use the term vrikalakis, which is a bit of a catch-all term since it also means werewolf. But this was Sweden, so they used something which sounds close to the term which I'm sure has already come to mind for you. vampire, Or, as it's more commonly pronounced in Western cultures, vampire. I'm Nate Hale inviting you to come listen to the Children of the Night, what sweet music they make, and this is The Conspirators. Alnwick Castle is in the English county of Northumberland. The Baron of Alnwick built the first parts of the castle back in 1096, following the Norman conquest of England. If you've ever seen any of the Harry Potter movies, then you've undoubtedly seen the castle before. The filmmakers used Alnwick Castle as the backdrop for Hogswarts in many scenes. But long before Hollywood ever used the castle as a school for fictional wizards, the castle had its own legend for something dark and mysterious. In the late 12th century, the respected medieval historian William of Newburgh wrote a history of Castle Almwick, the Historia Rerum Anglicarum, in which he told the story of a man who caught his wife cheating on him. The husband was a rather wicked individual who had lived a thoroughly disreputable life. Contrary to what the old cliche says, apparently crime does pay, because the man committed enough of them to make himself very wealthy, wealthy enough to become the lord of the manor. Over time, the man began to hear rumors about his wife's indiscretions, and he decided to lie in wait to catch her in the act. He hid on the castle's roof while his wife was in bed with her lover in the bedroom below. But while the man paced angrily as he listened to the sounds of their lovemaking beneath his feet, part of the roof collapsed, and the man fell through, landing in a heap on the floor below. He was mortally injured in the fall. As he lay there dying... He was still so preoccupied with his wife's infidelity that he neglected to confess his sins to the priest that attended him before he died. As a result, the man became cursed, and after that night, he wasn't a man anymore. By night the creature he had become would rise from the tunnels beneath the castle and wander the estate grounds looking for victims. He left behind a string of bodies, all with slashed throats and gaping wrists. And on those nights when the creature was unable to find any victims, he would head into town and kill with impunity. When plague struck the town, the townspeople didn't blame disease for all the deaths. Instead, they blamed the monster. It all came to a head one Palm Sunday when a group of angry townspeople headed to Castle Almwick in what sounds like the climactic scene of a lot of horror movies. They armed themselves with pitchforks, torches and shovels and the mob headed for the castle cemetery ready to confront the monster. They dug up the creature's grave, but instead of finding a skeleton in the coffin, they discovered a fresh corpse bloated with blood. The angry mob beheaded the corpse, dragged the remains out of town, and burned it to ashes. They then reinterred those ashes in holy ground to prevent it from ever returning. No doubt this story has elements that sound familiar to you. Although the creature from this legend has gone on to be known as the Alnwick Vampire, The term vampire wouldn't actually be coined for many centuries later. Pretty much every major culture around the world contains some story about a creature of the night that we would call a vampire. Although the names and some of the details might change, the basic concept of the vampire still applies. A creature that rises from the dead and takes sustenance from the living. On many occasions, archaeologists around the world have found human remains that showed evidence that people feared they were vampires. Just a few years ago, Bulgarian archaeologists dug up more than 100 skeletons whose chests had been impaled with iron rods to keep them pinned in their graves. In Poland, researchers discovered the remains of several individuals whose heads were removed and placed in their laps. Other archaeologists have discovered bodies buried with sharpened blades laid across the neck, presumably so that if they tried to move, they'd decapitate themselves. One particularly famous 16th-century grave that was unearthed in Venice, Italy, contained a skeleton with a brick shoved in its mouth to prevent it from biting anyone. Of course, we can't talk about vampires without mentioning the 800-pound bat in the room. In 1897, author Bram Stoker created the most famous vampire in history when he cobbled together various vampire legends he'd read and tacked on the nickname given to Wallachian Prince Vlad III, or Vlad the Impaler, as he's sometimes known. Vlad's father, Vlad II, was also known as Dracul, which means dragon. This, of course, led to Vlad III becoming known as the son of the dragon, or as we all know it, Dracula. The true story of Dracula is well worthy of its own show, one I'd like to save for another day. But I would like to tell you about some of the true stories that helped inspire Irish theater manager Bram Stoker to create the famous bloodsucker. One thing most historians agree on, vampire legends often seem to accompany disease outbreaks throughout history. In fact, some of the folklore surrounding vampires may be able to be traced directly to various epidemics. Some people have theorized the source of the vampire legends is the disease porphyria, a genetic disorder in which a vital part of hemoglobin production in the body malfunctions. As a result, the sufferer becomes acutely sensitive to sunlight, and their gums turn purple and recede making their canine teeth more prominent. From those descriptions, it's certainly understandable how someone suffering from porphyria could be mistaken for a vampire. The problem with this theory is that the disorder is extremely rare, which makes it difficult to believe so many different cultures would have encountered it. Another popular theory that might have a bit more validity to it is rabies. Rabies is much more common than porphyria, and the person unlucky enough to contract the disease would exhibit many vampire-like symptoms. There's the aversion to sunlight, a sudden change in behavior accompanied by an insatiable thirst, and of course, animals that contract rabies are often known to bite in order to spread the disease further. One other possible source for the vampire legends is tuberculosis, or as it was more commonly known hundreds of years ago, consumption. During the 18th and 19th centuries, one in four children would fall prey to the disease. The very word consumption gives some clue to why some medical historians believe this may be where many vampire legends spring from. The term consumption comes from the way it appeared the patient was being consumed from within, as they turned pale and weak as they coughed up their own blood. During the late 1800s, much of New England was gripped by a mass vampire panic that seems to be largely born out of a tuberculosis outbreak that tore through the region. People were dying left and right. And with no clear understanding of bacterial infection, superstitious locals instead cast the blame for all the deaths on vampires. In 1817, Frederick Ransom of South Woodstock, Vermont, died of consumption on Valentine's Day at the age of 20. His father became so worried that the young man would rise from his grave and attack his family that he had the body exhumed and then he burned the young man's heart on a blacksmith's forge. Probably the most famous case that occurred during this period, and one that is thought to have helped inspire Bram Stoker to write his famous novel, was that of Mercy Brown. In the late 1800s in Exeter, Rhode Island, the family of George and Mary Brown suffered a series of deaths all brought on by tuberculosis. Mary Brown, the mother, was the first to die of consumption, followed in 1883 by their eldest daughter Mary Olive. In 1891, two more children, Mercy and son Edwin, also contracted the disease. Mercy died, and young Edwin clung to life by a thread. Friends and neighbors looked at the string of tragic deaths and came to one conclusion. One of the deceased family members had to be a vampire. George Brown was persuaded to allow the bodies of his family to be exhumed and examined. A crowd of villagers, the local doctor, and a newspaper reporter gathered to dig up the graves. While the bodies of Mary and Mary Olive were significantly decomposed, the body of the more recently deceased Mercy was still in rather good condition and still contained blood in her heart and liver. This was all the evidence the nervous townsfolk needed to determine that Mercy Brown was a vampire. Realistically, her relative lack of decomposition was more likely due to the fact that she'd been buried in near freezing temperatures in an above-ground crypt two months earlier but logic tends to go straight out the window when mob mentality is involved. In order to save the life of young Edwin, the locals removed Mercy's heart from her body, burned it to ashes, and mixed those ashes with water, which was then given to Edwin to drink. But the potion didn't work, as you might imagine, and Edwin died anyway two months later. Although disease and a lack of medical knowledge is often cited as the source of many vampire legends, It isn't the only reason. Throughout history, there have been numerous murders that have occurred that contain many of the trappings of the vampire legends, particularly the drinking of blood. Lily Lindstrom and the Atlas Vampire was just one such gruesome true story. During the 1900s in the town of Chincota, near Budapest, lived a man named Bella Kish. Along with his day job as a tinsmith, Kish was an amateur astronomer and known to have an interest in the occult. Tall, blonde, and handsome, Kish was known as something of a ladies' man. In 1912, when he was 35, he married a woman named Marie, who was 15 years younger than him. The marriage didn't last long, or at least Marie didn't, because it wasn't long after they were wed that her eyes strayed to a suitor closer to her age, an artist named Paul Bakari. The pair disappeared shortly after the beginning of their affair, Kish told people that his wife and her lover had run off together to America, and no one bothered to question his story. Not long after, Kish began communicating with a string of other young women, many of whom came to visit him in Budapest. None of them appeared to stick around long, though. In 1914, Kish left to fight in World War I, leaving the cottage he rented in the care of his elderly housekeeper. Only he never returned from war. And after a couple years, rumors began to circulate that Kish had been killed in action. In 1916, Kish's landlord decided that the rumors must be true and his tenant wouldn't be returning. So he began to clean up the cottage to make room for new tenants. The landlord started with seven large metal barrels that Kish had left in the yard. Kish's housekeeper told him that she believed her employer had been storing gasoline in them in anticipation of a fuel shortage during the war. The curious landlord decided to poke a hole in one to see for himself and when he did, he was hit with the overwhelming stench of decay. Police arrived and opened each barrel up. Inside each of them, they found the body of a naked young woman preserved in wood alcohol. There was only one male victim, that of Paul Bakari, his wife's lover. Kish's wife's body was found in a different barrel. Many of the corpses had ropes strung around their necks. Several of them had dual puncture marks in their throats, and they had been drained of blood. This would lead the newspapers to dub Belakish Kish the Vampire of Chinkota. Police investigated and managed to track Kish to a Serbian hospital in the Carpathian Mountains, where he allegedly contracted typhoid. By sheer coincidence, the Carpathian Mountains also happened to be the home to the castle often cited as Castle Dracula, but I digress. When police went to the hospital, they realized that Kish had switched places with another patient and given them the slip. For many years after, no one knew where Kish went. In 1932, a New York City police detective claimed to have spotted Kish strolling out of the subway at Times Square. But the subway platform was so crowded that Bella Kish managed to vanish in the crowd. The last reported sighting of Kish was in 1936, when someone else thought they saw the serial killer working as a janitor in the city. Vampires have gone through something of a cultural shift in the modern era. Whereas for many years they had a certain old-fashioned gothic allure, the flowing capes, the florid language, the ancient castles, at some point vampires changed with the times and became modernized. There are very real subcultures of people today who identify themselves as vampires, and are even known to drink blood, although this particular subculture isn't known to murder anyone. There are some who claim to be psychic vampires who feed off other people's life force, Pop culture has graduated from very Victorian tales like Dracula, to the more modern vampires found in shows like Buffy the Vampire Slayer and the Twilight books and movies. One very real vampire incident that may have sprung directly out of our pop culture fascination with vampires occurred in the Gorbals district of Glasgow, Scotland in 1954. Gorbals is a working class neighborhood that happens to contain a massive necropolis, a literal city of the dead that houses more than 250,000 of Glasgow's former citizens. This is as old-school a cemetery as they come. With its elaborate stone crypts and monuments, it's every bit what you would think of when you imagine a horror movie cemetery. On September 23, 1954, Constable Alex DeProse responded to a call about a disturbance in the necropolis. This wasn't the first time Constable DePros had been called out to the old cemetery but it would prove to be the most unusual. In most cases, he just had to chase off vandals causing mischief or young lovers making out in the shadows of the mausoleum. But the constable didn't find vandals when he arrived that evening. Instead, he found more than 200 of the local children ranging in age from 5 to 14, armed with sharpened stakes, knives, shovels, clubs, and anything else they could use as a weapon. Many of them had brought their dogs with them. They did all this to help them in the search for the vampire they believed lived inside the cemetery. The children told Constable Deeprose that they were after the fiend that had murdered two children recently, a vampire that tore out their throats with its iron teeth. The constable was understandably perplexed. If two children had been murdered anywhere in the area, he would have known about it. The constable managed to send all the children home that night, but by the next night even more of them were back and again the following evening after that. The bizarre panic that overtook the children appeared to have begun in the playgrounds of the local schools. Rumors spread telephone style from child to child about the deadly vampire with the mouth full of iron fangs. But the local parents and teachers were at a loss why this particular rumor began to spread in the first place. Eventually, as often happens in times of hysteria, a scapegoat was found. Namely, American Horror Comics. 1954 and 1955 were transformative years for the comics industry. In America, noted psychiatrist Frederick Wortham published his book, The Seduction of the Innocent, where he laid the blame for juvenile delinquency and pretty much every other societal problem he saw in young people firmly at the feet of comic books that were corrupting young minds. According to Wortham, the crime and horror comics published by EC Comics were particularly to blame, an idea that traveled across the pond to the United Kingdom. In 1955, members of Parliament became so convinced that horror comics were to blame for the Gorbals' vampire panic, they passed the Children's and Young Persons Harmful Publications Act that prohibited the sale of horror comics or other types of medium that were deemed harmful to children. But some free speech advocates were quick to point out that none of the stories in horror comics at that time featured a child-eating vampire with iron teeth. Instead, they were able to cite several examples of local folklore that detailed just such a creature. The vampire even had a name. Jenny. Jenny with the Iron Teeth was the subject of an ancient Scottish poem, which mothers would tell their children to scare them at bedtime. Another such story that was commonly being passed around was the urban legend of the Iron Man. No, not Tony Stark, but a boogeyman who lurked in the cemetery waiting to spring out on unsuspecting passers-by. It seems somehow the stories of the Iron Man and Jenny with the Iron Teeth became merged together into the vampire all the children were hunting for. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses so join me in the fun sign up now at chumbacasino.com no purchase necessary BDW, Void or prohibited by law see terms and conditions 18 plus the story of the gorbel's vampire wasn't the only tale of modern day vampires to come out of the united kingdom just a few years later another vampire panic occurred on an even larger scale one night in 1963 a couple was walking home down swain's lane past the north gates of london's Highgate cemetery When they came face to face with a tall, dark figure behind the railings. This would have been disturbing enough on its own, but according to the couple, the figure was levitating several inches off the ground. It had pale skin and piercing, hypnotic red eyes. For a moment, the couple stood transfixed, unable to move. Then the spell broke, and they both ran for their lives all the way home. Other sightings of the mysterious figure would happen over the next few years. One man claimed to see the creature sliding down the cemetery wall, spreading out like molasses as he described it. Like the cemetery in Gorbals, Highgate is another ancient Gothic necropolis full of ornate stone monuments that would be the perfect place for a vampire to reside. It was built in 1839 as a place for London's high society to be buried. By the 1920s, the number of people buried there swelled to around 170,000. During World War II, German bombs wrecked part of the cemetery, and all the young men who would normally act as groundskeepers went off to fight in the army. As a result, the cemetery was left to crumble and decay, something which only managed to amp up the creepiness factor of the place. In fact, in a bit of life imitating art, Hammer Films did actually use Highgate Cemetery to film scenes from one of their Dracula movies there during the late 1960s and the story of the Highgate Vampire would inspire them to make their own modern-day vampire movie, Dracula A.D. 1972. As more and more reports began arising about the mysterious figure in black, as well as other stories of satanic rituals being performed on the cemetery grounds, a group known as the British Occult Society began to take an interest. One of the group's members, a young man named David Ferrant, decided to conduct his own investigation. He camped out in the cemetery on a chilly December night in 1968. That night he claimed to encounter a tall gray figure with glowing red eyes that seemed to stare directly into his soul. The local newspaper, the Hampstead and Highgate Express, became interested in the story, particularly the reports of Satanists performing black magic rituals and animal sacrifices throughout the area. Just a couple months earlier, on Halloween 1968, some unknown person or persons desecrated a grave in nearby Tottenham Park Cemetery. Whoever it was arranged flowers they'd picked up from other graves, and encircled one grave in particular. Then they dug up the coffin and drove an iron stake in the form of a cross directly through the coffin lid and into the breast of the corpse. In a letter to the newspaper, Ferrant told a story about his own encounter with the entity asking if anyone else had seen anything similar. Hundreds of people replied, each with their own scary stories that occurred in and around Highgate Cemetery. In the weeks that followed Ferent's original letter, one story in particular emerged suggesting that the creature was actually a king vampire, a nobleman who had practiced black magic in medieval Wallachia. You may remember that Wallachia was the home of Vlad III, a.k.a. Dracula. So the story went, some British noblemen brought the King Vampire's body to England in the 1800s and buried it in Highgate Cemetery. The primary proponent of the story was a former member of the British Occult Society named Sean Manchester, a self-proclaimed bishop of an obscure church and part-time vampire hunter. He claimed the King Vampire was still very active in and around the area after a group of modern-day Satanists went and woke him up. Farrant and Manchester had a growing rivalry between them. Farrant claimed to be the more serious paranormal researcher, while Manchester was the more flamboyant of the pair, as well as the one who made the most outlandish claims. Manchester publicly declared that he was going to conduct a vampire hunt on Friday, March 13th. When the day finally arrived, local news reporters broadcast interviews with both Ferrant and Manchester, and as a result... Within two hours of the broadcast, a mob of would-be vampire hunters swarmed the gates and walls of Highgate Cemetery, looking for the Vampire King. It was a party atmosphere, and a lot of the crowd was already pretty drunk by the time they arrived. Police tried to keep them out, but they pushed past them and made an even bigger mess of the already decaying cemetery than it already was. People ripped open tombs and desecrated bodies. Several people took ghoulish souvenirs for themselves and killed foxes they believed were creatures of the underworld. One thing they didn't manage to do was find a king vampire. Manchester would later claim in a book he wrote that he and several companions later managed to sneak inside the cemetery unobserved by the police. He claimed that he was led to the vampire king's tomb by a beautiful blonde psychic girl who was possessed by an ancient spirit. They tried to crack open the front door of the tomb but were unable to make the door budge. They managed to get in by climbing down through a hole in the roof, where they performed a ritual and spread garlic and holy water throughout the place to rid it of evil. Things quickly continued to escalate out of control. On August 1, 1970, someone dug up a woman's body, then used it in some sort of black magic ritual that involved removing the head, driving a stake through the chest, and setting the remains on fire. In the weeks that followed, Ferent and Manchester continued to lurk around the cemetery. One night in August, Ferent was arrested inside the adjoining churchyard carrying a wooden stake and a crucifix. The charges were later dismissed. But he continued to return to the cemetery with his group, undaunted. One time, they reportedly discovered a body that had been removed from its grave and laid out inside a large pentagram. Other times, they discovered makeshift altars decorated with stolen human skulls. One night, police were called to check out a suspicious car parked outside the cemetery gates, only to discover it contained a decapitated corpse that turned out to be a prank put on by some rambunctious teenagers. In his book, Manchester claims that he and several friends returned to Highgate Cemetery hunting the vampire in broad daylight. This time, they managed to pry open a different family vault, inside which they lifted the lid off a massive stone coffin where they believed the vampire king was sleeping. Manchester was about to drive a stake through the corpse's heart, when his companions managed to convince him that this particular course of action might be a bit unwise in the eyes of the law. Instead, Manchester reluctantly shut the coffin, leaving only some garlic and incense behind. But Manchester remained undeterred in his mission to kill the Vampire King. He would go on to claim that he later tracked the vampire to an empty house in the nearby area, where he allegedly staked and burned the corpse. The feud between Manchester and Ferrant continues to this day. Both men claim to be skilled exorcists and researchers of the paranormal. Although their accounts of what happened in and around Highgate Cemetery vary widely. As you might expect, both men have had the veracity of their many supernatural claims come into question. Although the feud rages on between the pair, they do appear to have one thing in common. A complete lack of evidence that there ever was a Highgate vampire. Today, Ferent has even gone so far as to say he doesn't believe the entity haunting Highgate was a vampire at all. And he now states that he never claimed it in the first place. Although that doesn't seem to jibe with what he was doing with the crucifix and wooden stake he was arrested with. In the 1980s, a local group formed to repair and restore Highgate Cemetery to its former glory. The cemetery is open to paid public tours today. It's easy to see why people might think they see ghostly apparitions throughout the cemetery. You can easily chalk up all the weird sightings to tricks of light and shadow coupled with some overactive imaginations. One problem that happens when you retell history is it's often difficult to separate fact from myth. Back in 1922 around Coventry Street in London's West End, three men were attacked on the same day by an unknown assailant who left gaping puncture wounds in their throats. All three men were treated at Charing Cross Hospital and all three men gave eerily similar stories about what had happened. Despite a police investigation, no one was ever caught, at least not officially. There is one story that claims a group of citizens banded together and managed to catch and kill the vampire that attacked the three men. Afterwards, they decided to bury the creature's body on consecrated ground. According to this particular tale, the place they chose to bury the creature was Highgate Cemetery. The Conspirators is written and produced by me, Nate Hale, an Entirely Fictional Identity. Thanks so much for listening. Special thanks to Christy for clicking the donate button on our website and helping support us. This month, we're continuing to participate in the Two Pods a Day celebration, in which every day between now and June 13th, Josh Hallmark of the Our Americana podcast will be promoting two independent podcasts each day. Visit twopodsaday.wordpress.com to check out the shows they've already promoted. Thanks again for all your support. I encourage you to subscribe and rate us on iTunes. I'd love to read your reviews and get your feedback. You can also reach out to us on our Facebook page, Twitter, Instagram, or our website, theconspiratorspodcast.com. Thanks again, and I hope you join us again next week.